Now, ladies and gentlemen, the subject tonight is, is man genetically or environmentally controlled? And I would like to point out to you that at the start, the communists, the Marxists, believe that we are environmentally controlled. That's the basis of their theory of concentration camps. You see, if you change the environment, lock up all the pastors, the environment will make everybody atheist. That's their idea. And the idea of a concentration camp is to take away any theistic influence. And if you put them in an atheistic, brutal uh, environment, then everybody will become a communist. If you can't, well, well, it's just too bad for the patient. The patient is then wiped out. The second view is that we're genetically controlled, and that's the basis of the fascist movement. Hitler believed that it was the Aryan race which made his country the destined rulers of this world, the Aryan race. The Jews and all the others were missing links, and uh, God would have wiped them out in the course of time, but God wasn't quick enough for Hitler, so he just tried to help God. He says so. He to help God by wiping them out genetically, put them in the gas oven. Now, I want to show you that a Christian's got to think, if he's going to go through these uh, awful times of the end, through which we are going. You live here in a paradise, you know. I know all the other things that aren't par like a paradise here, but um, you need to be instructed on these things. Other countries are going the way that we don't want them to go. Now I'm going to read to you the Word of God for getting uh, a line on how we must understand how we become, what we become. And the Word I'm going to read to you is in Luke 8, 4-15. In Luke, the Gospel according to Luke 4 to 15, Luke 8, 4 to 15. When a great crowd came together, and people from town after town came to him, Jesus said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. Now, seed is a packet of genes. Okay? And here we have the first clue to why I've chosen this. And so I went out to sow his genes, sow his genes, sow his seeds, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path and was trodden underfoot, and the birds of the hour of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him what this parable meant. And Jesus said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. This parable of the packets of genes 
is a secret of the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to teach you, I hope, God's help, a little bit of science. But you'll know by it the secrets of the kingdom of God. I wouldn't do it otherwise. I've taught pharmacology and genetics long enough and I've done 40 years of it. Now, if I weren't teaching you something beyond that, I wouldn't do it. So I want you to pay ever such close attention to all the details I give you because it says, you know, in Romans chapter 1 that if we look at science which is the study of nature we see the nature and being of the living eternal God and anybody who doesn't see it anybody who doesn't see it is without excuse understand? therefore if you want to know more about God you've got two chances you can read about him in the Bible and become a theologian okay? or the other one is to read about God in nature in that you study science and anybody who doesn't see the eternal God and his nature in science is without excuse says the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 I wouldn't do it I believe all science to be creation science myself there's nothing else it's only that you have been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God but for others they're in parable so that seeing they may not see many scientists see nature and don't see God that's what that passage means hearing they may not understand now the parable is this the seed the packet of genes the seed is the word of God that puts a different light on it doesn't it the seed is the word of God the ones along the path are those who have heard it then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts they may not believe be saved and the ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word receive it the seed with joy but these have no root they believe for a while and in time of temptation they fall away but as for what fell among the thorns they are those who hear but as they go on their way they are choked with the cares of this life and the riches and pleasures of life riches and pleasures choke the seed and their fruit does not mature and as for that in the good soil they are those who having heard the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bring forth fruit with patience Lord Jesus we ask thee to open our minds open our understanding as thou didst do to thine own disciples when thou wast amongst us as man open the words of my mouth meditations of my heart and our hearts all of us that may always be acceptable to thee our Lord and our creator Amen now ladies and gentlemen the first man that started to study genes on a sensible basis was of course Mendel the monk and he worked with his garden peas and he showed that the heredity of garden peas thank you the heredity of garden peas was according to mathematics and it wasn't chance now Darwin didn't read his work although Mendel's work was produced during Darwin's life if Darwin had read it you know he was intelligent enough to know 
that the whole basis of his theory in chants was for the birds if he'd only read it but he didn't read it you know there are lots of things we'd know if we read and did as Paul said continue in reading and in prayer developing the mind Darwin didn't and suggested that theory therefore because he didn't read that has devastated the intellectual world for over a hundred years just because he didn't know now Mendel found out you see that it was done according to mathematics and you know I've got my mother's eyes can't help it and I've got my father's stature can't help it I have the fresh complexion when I'm almost dead you know I look healthy and well and blooming and all the rest of it my father did until he was 90 and uh, I'm afraid I'm like it uh, happily uh, mothers give their temperament usually uh, to their sons you know uh, it's mathematical uh, my daughter has got my temperament poor girl and she's <laughs> got my hands and arms poor child but she's got uh, lots of lots of nice things from her mother too all mathematically wrapped up in packets and how glad I am that that's the case now they forgot Mendel till after he was dead I had a professor in Oxford whose name was E.B. Ford and he was a tall man and he had an even higher voice you could hear his voice for miles away uh, he had a, a huge um, pate with no hair on it and uh, his uh, his uh, glory was Drosophila melanogaster. You know all about Drosophila melanogaster, don't you? The fruit fly. And he uh, <laughs> worked on the fruit fly and he did some very marvelous work while I was there. Uh, he worked out on the chromosomes. Uh, he worked out on those chromosomes the bulges and the swellings where the properties of the Drosophila menonogaster were located. He made maps of where the length of the wings was decided, and where the color of the hair was decided, whether the eyes would be red and the animal an albino or not. He got that, those maps out done beautifully. The only thing about Ford was that he didn't know what those bulges were. He knew they were there and he could map them but he didn't know what was inside and the next two people who went at that that particular problem what was inside the genes were, France, were Francis Crick and Watson in Cambridge in England and they found out that everything was written down in those bulges in a code the code was a language and they broke the code so that you could read it and they found out what all the other people before them they didn't know that it was a book but a super book the most micro book the most miniaturized book that you can imagine and they broke the code for it now I want to talk to you just for one minute about what a code is because some people don't know and if you don't know you'll be lost before we go very far now, I'm going to show you first of all what a code is and then what's inside those bumps and swellings 
in the genes and then we'll go on from there. Now, this is what a code is. If I have a concept in my mind, don't think that you speak in a language, but don't think that you think in a language, you speak in a language, but you don't think in a language. You think in a concept. And then, according with your American, German, uh, Japanese, Chinese, you put that concept in which you think, you put it into a code. And that's your language. Now, if you have, say, the concept in your mind of peril, peril, P-E-R-I-L, danger. Now, danger can be, of course, if I have appendicitis and I've got a lot of pain and I don't do anything about it, then it may burst. And if your doctor doesn't do um, something quickly and carve me up and seal it off and wash me out, uh, I shall die. Uh, that's a danger. Now, if a person does have a danger, he has the concept of code, that there's something wrong in him, a concept, uh, then he calls out for help. Now, the idea of calling out for help is rather a mouthful, you see, so we called it, this concept, S-O-S. Now, SOS doesn't look like appendicitis. SOS doesn't look like a car blowout. But SOS does certainly convey to anybody that knows the idea that I'm in danger. If you're driving along the road, uh, the freeway, and you're, well, you can't do it here, but you can in Europe. You can drive at 200 miles an hour along the freeway if you want to. It's rather awkward, though, if a tire blows out at that speed. Um, I had one blow out once, but not at that speed, but high enough. And uh, the thing to do is to go to a telephone box labeled S-O-S. Now, you see, use S-O-S for a tire blow out. You can use it for appendicitis. You can use it for an abscess under your tooth or for anything else that's peril. Now, what I want you to notice is this, ladies and gentlemen. Please underline it in your thoughts in red ink. The code carries a concept, and the concept is peril, but the code is no natural law. It's entirely arbitrary. Somebody thought that SOS, save our thoughts, would be a good thing. Uh, that's what it was originally, it would be a good thing to hang a concept upon. But there's no natural law. This is very important because we're going to talk about natural laws and the genetic code. There's no natural law relating this reduction of entropy or increase of order such as S-O-S represents. There's no natural law which couples the two together. That's entirely arbitrary. And it's known as a language convention. And language conventions aren't built up on natural law. They're built up on arbitrariness of men who need to make codes. Now, the genetic code is no exception. The genetic code is a code which is not coupled to natural law. How you can derive it from natural law is a mystery to me, 
Because every scientist wants everything to be coupled to natural law, he wants it to be naturalist. He wants it to reside in matter. And yet he knows perfectly well that a code does not reside in natural law. How then can he say it does? Well, that's one of the mysteries of the workings of uh, confusion in the human mind. And I point that out to you right at the start. You'll need it two or three times before I finished on the scientific part. Now, SOS, I can communicate it to you by writing S-O-S. I hold it up on a bit of paper and you say, oh, the man's got stomachache. Right? I've communicated it to you very easy. But you know, it's not very, not very useful sometimes to take the letters of the alphabet to get a code over. It's sometimes more useful to code it again. And we code it again by writing dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. S, O, S, equals, dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. Now, if you're a ship's officer, you know how to do it. You get a flag, you get a flash lamp, or you speak it into the radio, you tap it out with a key. Now, dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, 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 doesn't look like appendicitis, nor does it look like a blowout on a car. It doesn't look like peril. But you see, it's perfectly arbitrary. And language conventions, codes, even the language convention which we knew as a genetic code, is entirely the product of a language convention out of an intellectual apparatus. It has nothing to do with natural law. Now that's very important to learn, and tomorrow evening I want to go into that further. Now I could, if I wanted to communicate to you that I've got stomachache, no worry, I haven't. I've eaten very well today, and the Americans are awfully kind to me, and I feel okay. Now I could communicate it to you. Listen to this, don't you miss it? If I don't get you, see a little bit of oxyhemoglobin into your minds, into your brains, by making you laugh, you'll never stand this, because, uh, <laughs> because um, this requires thinking about, and most people are lazy in, in respect of thought, and sometimes in other things as well. Now, if I want to communicate that to you, ladies and gentlemen, this is vital, absolutely vital. When a vital thing is coming, I'll usually try and try my hand to get easy laugh so that I've got just that bit of extra oxygen up there so that it sits. Now, I can do it. I can communicate to you. Are you listening? I can communicate to you. I've got so much to do. Uh, the, I can communicate the concept of peril by pulling out one of my shoelaces. Uh, there they are, you see? The shoelaces. I can pull one out and I can tie in it the shoelace. I've lost my screen. That's my trouble, you see. The, I, can I can pull out the shoelace and I can tie in it one knot, one knot, one knot. Knot, knot, knot. K-N-O-T. Alright? And then I can tie in it towards the bottom two knots, double knot, double knot. So knot, 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 double knot, double knot, double knot, 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 knot. Now I hold it up to you and you see knot, 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 double knot, double knot, double knot, 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 knot. And what do you say? Oh, he's got appendicitis. You see? 
the man's uh, the man's in need. That is an SOS call, but you see how it communicated to you. Now you think of the advantages. This is the Inca method of writing, you know. This is how the Incas wrote. They didn't have any paper, nor did they have pens, but they did have pampas grass, and they, they had ropes. So they took long pieces of string, boot laces, you see, and they tied into them knots. And they did it, the knotting, just like we write letters on paper. And they could read it with their fingers when it was dark. Just run your fingers down it, you see, and you've got knot, 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 double knot, double knot, double knot, 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 aha, okay. Parallel, you see, they didn't use the Morse code, but that's how we would do it today. Now, they could not only do it with their fingers, they could do it with the light, with their eyes. You see, the fingers are feeling. And the eyes are also a feeling, but they're two different organs, two different senses. So they could look at it, and just by looking at it, they knew the contents, just like we read. But you think how nice it is to be able to read your writing, or feel it, just as you like. Well, we have to feel it for the blind, blind people with Braille, you know. You've got to make a special form of writing, because our writing's not suited to that. But if you have it on a string, we're not... You can do it by both methods. Wonderful method of doing it. Um, now, that's what the genetic code looks like. The genetic code runs on this basis, ladies and gentlemen. This is absolutely vital. The genetic code doesn't use one shoelace. It uses two. And between the shoelaces are hung up the genetic letters. And instead of having the two letters of the Morse code, you have four. You see, in Morse code, you have two letters, dot and dash, and then the interval. And with the dot and dash and the interval, you can write everything down, everything that our 26 letters of the alphabet can do. And you see how much advantage that is. You could take a shoelace, and with... Just two letters in the interval, you could write up the Bible. It'd have to be a long shoelace, but you could, you, 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 you could do it. You could write up Goethe, Roseland, uh, Roseland, Roseland, Wort, Roseland, after Heidi, you know, which you all learnt in German at school, didn't you? I hope. Now, you could write it all up that way. You could write up Shakespeare. But a super method of writing books is simply marvellous, because you can pull the two shoelaces apart, and from the one ladder that you put of the shoelace up one side, which goes into one cell, and the other ladder which goes into the other cell when you're dividing a cell, each side, automatically, by complementarity, reproduces the total ladder of two shoe shoelaces. And reproduces the total letters. So you've only got to pull the thing apart like a zip fastener. And the other side of the zip fastener, which is lacking in each cell, forms itself by complementarity. It's an, absolute, it's an absolute genius of an idea how to quickly rewrite the whole book. Now, when you were conceived, there were 23 chapters of the Knot Method on strings which put the total information to make you in the cell. Now, we can read 
the chromosomes and the genes in a human zygote today and we know that there are 46 chapters and if we were to write these chapters down in English which we can do they're chemical instructions how to make alanine combine how to make the enzymes which make you work how your digestion's got to function how your liver's got to be built how your kidney's got to be built how the concept of your eyes got to be built all these concepts are in code form we can read them now in one zygote of a human which you can't see or scarcely can see with the naked eye because it's as, as uh, transparent as water but you can see if you stain it right the 46 chromosomes and if you write them down in books do you know how many volumes you'd need to write them down in English on paper? You'd need a thousand volumes, each of 500 pages, and the smallest print that any printer knows. And then you'd scarcely get in all the instructions which God has put there in a code form to make you the shape of your nose, the fact that you're not a crocodile or a cabbage, uh, the fact that you are a human being and the remarkable thing is it's all in one language all in one code throughout nature there are only minor variations the information written up to make a blue-green alga is about the same in all essential details the information required to synthesize an amoeba and to synthesize a frog and to synthesize a bee orchid and to synthesize a crocodile and to synthesize an ape and to synthesize you. It's all the same language. Now, you know, if you believe that this super language, which is common to all nature, arose by chance, then you're forgetting that the basis of a language is the coupling by arbitrary means of a concept with a reduced entropy system, with a language. You see, it's entirely arbitrary, this method of doing things, to say that danger is equivalent to S-O-S. There's no natural law behind it. And it's entirely arbitrary to say that danger is equivalent to dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, 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 on a string. There's no natural law behind it. And when you look at the, you know that an intellectual law is behind it, an arbitrary one. Now, when you look at the genetic code, you just find that. And it's a super code that we can read and write down and use ourselves to make ourselves. You can go into the lab now, open a notebook in English, and you can write it down in the genetic code. And you put it into an animal or a plant, lo and behold, the animal or the plant will build itself from the concepts you had first of all written down in English and which are now written down in the genetic code. It only takes eight or nine hours, you know, to duplicate the cells of your body. And you think that's a thousand volumes, each of 500 pages, in the smallest script, the smallest type that you can think of. You ask a secretary how long it takes to type out again a thousand books each of 500 pages. I asked somebody that once in the university meeting and there was a bright young lady in front and I noticed she didn't pay any more attention to me after I asked her that, asked the whole congregation that. 
There she was working a computer, you see here. She came up with the answer at the end, and she said, two and a half years, sir, if I work 24 hours every day without stopping at all, you don't count the mistakes I make. Well, now, this is done with no noise. No noise. Just put a few potatoes in your mouth, and off it goes. By room temperature, it gears itself. Now, look. Think what I've said to you. Think what I've said to you. I'm glad you're laughing. I don't need to make you then, so that you've got enough oxygen in your brain. Now, if I say that to you, ladies and gentlemen, the natural consequence is, oh, oh, the man is a determinist. She's a fatalist. You see, I've said to you, really, if you think it through very carefully, that the most important thing is to get the right instructions so that you're the right sort of person genetically speaking. So I will say to this, I will say this to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the most important thing for a young man or a young woman to take care of is in the choice of his parents. You see, if he gets the wrong, if he, if he gets the, the wrong instructions uh, from mum and dad, he's going to suffer for it. So I would ask you to be very careful uh, about uh, that little problem of who your dad and mum are. Now, and also, when you're thinking of marrying... Consider it too. Both sides. It's very, very important. Because there are certain heredity diseases which ought not to be passed on, you know. Degenerative diseases which, is under, which are undermining the state of our race. Uh, because medicine allows all sorts of things to happen which normally wouldn't happen today and which would wipe out those diseases. Leave that. Do I believe in fatalism? Am I like the Muslim, our dear friends, who just simply say, Inshallah, God did it that way, and that's it. Am I determined genetically? Well, I am, to a certain extent. You see, I've told you, my genes come from my father and my mother, and I can't help it. Well, I'm very glad, actually, but uh, that's it. You see, the fact that I have the genes... X, Y, I have, you see, prove it, bed does it, uh, X, Y, that was given me a conception, and I can't do anything about it. That I'm a man is just simply determined. God knew all about that, but it's determinism. You okay? And the fact that my wife is XX. Uh, that was determined when she was conceived. She can't do anything about it, neither can you. Now, so far, we are determined. So far that I have blue eyes, uh, that's determined. My mother and father didn't have the dominance for brown eyes, and that's it. I can't do anything about it. But I will ask you another question. Although... Uh, I can't do anything about XY, and my wife can't do anything about XX, and we don't want to do anything about it, actually. But, um, <laughs> no, can't argue about it. Do you think, now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that because I'm XY, my wife is sitting there? What do you think? Do you think that... the 
that my XY determined that I married my wife. What do you think? Well, if I were XS, I couldn't, could I? But if it's XY, I can. But then, over and above that, inside those limits of XX and XY, we have freedom. But only inside those limits. You see, you can't do anything about the colour of your skin. But the colour of your skin does not determine your wife. It may have a slight influence on it, but it doesn't determine it. So you see, you have two outside barriers within which you have freedom of choice. There's determinism to a certain extent with your eyes, uh, with, with, uh, there's determinism to a certain extent within limits, but inside those limits you're free and outside you're not. So you see, it's, it's complicated to talk about these things, but it's very essential that we do uh, consider them. Um, now let me give you three or four experiments to show you just how this works. I'm going to go through them quickly. If anybody doesn't understand them, just please put up your thumb and finger. And I'll see it and uh, uh, try and get it straight. Experiment number one. I take some purebred fish. Little fish. Name doesn't matter. But they're purebred. And the father fish fertilizes the eggs of the mother and she lays a thousand eggs. Now, all those eggs, each one of them, is a zygote which is practically an identical twin to the next one because you see they're purebred there's very little variation in them and every fish looks like every other fish of this race okay now I take 500 of those eggs and I put them in seawater and I let them hatch out when the 500 hatch out I have 500 uh, hopping little fish that run around and they have swim around and they have two little eyes at the side of their head like two little side lamps at the side of their head okay that's what normally happens now if I take the other 500 which are genetically practically identical with the first 500 and I put into the seawater just a little bit too much just a trace too much of magnesium chloride now magnesium chloride is a constituent of seawater so I'm putting in nothing new I'm putting just a little bit too much. Not much, but just a little bit. And I let them hatch out. And I get out from the seawater with the magnesium chloride in it. I get 500 little fishes swimming out of their eggs. And each of them has one huge cyclops eye in the middle of the forehead. Now, the genes are there to make two eyes. The chemical instructions are there to make two eyes. But in the presence of an environment which is favorable for one eye, like the giants of old, you know, with one big headlamp looking at you instead of two, in the presence of the magnesium chloride of trace too much, I get one eye. What's done it? The environment controls the expression of the instructions in your genes. Your environment controls the expression and development of your genes. If your environment's unsuitable, you can have the best genes in the world. It won't help you much. You've got to bring out 
what's in them by a suitable environment. Now, that's experiment number one. You can repeat it if you like and get the fish and do it. Experiment number two is this. You all know, or let me see if you do know, see if I can see the expression on your face, you all know who Alitis obstetricans is. Sorry, my apparatus is out. Does it, does it work or does it not work? Oh, yes. Alitis obstetricans. It's on, uh, you just have to look and see which one it is. Um, he's the midwife toad. Now, he's a very friendly little fellow, and he lives on dry land, and he's not... Uh, Fussy, uh, like other toads are, the father's a very good fellow. He's a real good one. Because when the mother lays her eggs, he takes the slime of the eggs and wraps them like a string around his body, and he functions as the uterus. He functions as the womb. And he hatches the eggs himself on dry land. Friendly little fellow. And... Uh, the eggs don't hatch to tadpoles. They hatch inside this slime to toads that can look after themselves. Now listen. Obstet uh, Alutes obstetricans, the midwife toad, uh, doesn't have, like most toads during the breeding season, the little black population pads which ordinary toads have on their thumbs. You see, the ordinary toad that lives in water or near water, uh, the mother, when she's laying her eggs, is very slippery because of the water. And if the male can't hold her, he can't fertilize the eggs. By the, in the case of the midwife toad, the wife and the husband, they both live on dry land, and the female is therefore dry when she's fertilized, and the male can hold her without these black copulation pads which all other toads have on their thumbs. Now there was a man um, called Paul Camera who lived in Vienna and he believed that Darwinism was impossible because it was done by chance and he thought that you could put in the environment into the genes to give them new information after the principles of Lamarck. Now you know Lamarckism has been disproved. But that's what he thought. That was his idea. And so he said, let's see. Let's see. We'll take the midwife toad and we'll breed them through many years on dry land in the lab uh, where we've, where we've uh, got no water. And he did that. And of course no pads or anything developed. But then he took others and he made them breed in water so that the female was always wet and slippery when she was fertilized. And you know, after a number of generations, the male toads at the time of mating all developed little black pads on their thumbs. Well, he published that and said, I've proved that Lamarck was right if you put the environment there, the environment will go into the genes and then get the genes for making toad pads, which we don't usually have. So they published that. Bateson, who was a rabid evolutionist, he didn't like the Marxism at all. He hurried over from London 
to Vienna and he looked at them. And he looked at them as a scientist looks at things with a critical eye. And he laid these preparations of midwife toads' legs in the mating period into water. And out came the Indian ink. Now, some assistant had tried to help poor old camera and made the pads a bit more impressive by injecting very carefully a bit of Indian ink into each. The pads were there, but she was too enthusiastic. It was a she. Nobody found out who did it. But you know, the poor man so lost his courage over being exposed like that that he went into the mountains and shot himself with his right hand through his left temple. Now, it wasn't necessary to do that because he was right. You see, what had happened was this. The environment of the water had brought out the latent genes in the midwife toad. He had the genes all along, but his environment was not such that he needed them. And he didn't develop them. Now, she's like me, if I go into the garden, I've got lily-white hands now. I haven't been into my garden for six weeks. But when I go into my garden and dig with the spade and foot method, you know, first of all, I get blisters. And then I get corns uh, on my hands, little horny, uh, horny pads onto my hands here. Now, that is merely the fact that the pressure on my hands activates my genes and I produce those things for self-protection. Um, if I don't work, everything goes back. But if I do work in the garden, they come out and I activate my genes. So you see, you could have lots of genes in your body, and unless you have the environment acting on them, they don't come out, they remain latent, instead of being becoming patent. That is, the environment triggers the development of the information on your genes which you've got. Now I've got a third one which is very, very important indeed. It's this. If you take Wistar rats, they're white ones, you know, with red eyes, and you get a... They're nice little fellows. If you get, if you get those rats purebred, you can breed them together, brother and sister, and you get no abortions and no things like, no monstrosities out. They're purebred. There's nothing in them to come out which is bad and so they breed true even brothers and sisters uh, like the human race at the start did you know there's no difficulty about uh, the wives of Aben, uh, Cain and Abel uh, they were perfect you see so that nothing bad could come out and even the pharaohs lived that way you know they always married their sisters to keep the royal genes um, within the family Abraham married his half sister the same way uh, and the Jews are certainly not degenerate. They are certainly very intelligent people. Half-brother, half-sister uh, marriage. Now, these, these rats, if you take a mother of a Wistar rat and you let her breed, uh, say, with her brother, um, and she produces a litter of ten. Now, they're nice squirmy little things, you know, blind at the start, and all they've got one interest for is, of course, the mother and to get something out of her. And uh, you take five of them and you put them to the mother just after birth. You take the other five and you put them in solitary cages where they're kept warm and they're fed from a pipette 
and then liquid, and then later they get the solid stuff from an endless belt. If you bring them up in solitary confinement, they never see anything of life at all, neither a human nor a rat. Now, if you let them go for uh, a year like that, and then you do a rat IQ, you all know what an IQ is, don't you? Uh, I hope yours is 150, and, uh, okay, leave it at that. You uh, do the IQ of these rats by a rat IQ method. When you do that to the ones that have been in the family, they're 25 to 30% higher than those who have been brought up alone in solitary confinement. And if you cut a section through the brain and you look at the connections in the brain, synapses and so on, you'll find that the rats that are brought up with the mother are 25-30% better developed than the brains of the rats that have been brought up alone. Now if you let those rats, uh, after a year, that have been brought up alone, go back to the mother, they can't accommodate themselves, they can't fit in. Uh, they're sexually impotent often, they can't bring up a family themselves. If you do it with monkeys, if you take a monkey and bring it up alone, you know it can't copulate. It has no idea of sex and no relationship to other people. You see, what happens is this, that in the family, the mice react with one another with the, with the mother and the mother brings up the mice and the mice bring up the mother. And the result is that the genes for building brain are triggered to build brain by being in the family. And the genes of the five that were brought up alone are all there, just as they were in the genes of the five in the family. But they're not triggered by the environment to develop. Now the same is true of the human being. If you let the rat go on until puberty is passed, after a year, say, and you put the rat back to the mother, the mother won't, not, won't know what to do with the rat, and the rat won't know what to do with the mother. And the result is, all communications break down. Now, you're seeing that here. Now, I'm not suggesting your rats, you know, or anything like that, or even mice. But the same principle is what you're seeing. Now, I know all about overpopulation. But you know this, that is a fact, that most of the genii, which you've got the real big men, the real intelligent ones, there are exceptions to this. But a lot of them were brought up in big families. Because it's there you get the stimulation. And the stimulation brings out the development of the genes that you've got brings out your personality. And if you're brought up an only child, or if you're brought up, I'm not saying you are only, only children, there are uh, exceptions here, but I'm talking about generalities. The idea that you can bring up a family with only mother, or with only father, is surely not stimulating what you need, because a mother can develop in a child that which a father can't. And a father can develop in the genes of a child that which the mother can't. 
So God's ordinances of the family is being rapidly destroyed in our Western society. One of the most grave, the gravest signs you can see in American and in British and in European society is that the inventiveness, the creativity, is sinking rapidly. Your last president mentioned it. America was a nation of inventors. Look where you've got to. But that's all going to go suddenly if children aren't put into a stimulating environment before puberty. There's only one way to do that. That is in a family with many children where they react on another or in a good school with somebody who understands these things where they react with one another that the genes that are latent in them become patent and expressed. If you wait until after puberty, you know, you learn far less rapidly than you do before. Now, my children have been exposed to lots of cultures. We lived in uh, Switzerland, we've lived in Norway, and we've lived in Turkey, we've lived here, and we've lived uh, pretty well all round, you know. And my children just listen to Turkish on the street. You know, if they want to say anything that's rather unsayable in English, they will use the Turkish word for it and the expression. They never learnt it. Now, while we were in Illinois, we made it a rule to understand no English. I wouldn't. And the result was the children knew we wouldn't understand and they continued to speak with us in German. And also, the same applied in Geneva in French. And the same applied, although it was a bit early for them, in Norway. The result is those kids, before puberty, their computer is capable of listening to and seeing any language spoken and decoding it, breaking the code. Now, if you wait till after puberty, you'll always speak with an accent and your grammar will go wrong and your vocabulary will go wrong because we're only given the years before puberty to learn a language properly and you learn it by seeing it and hearing it spoken and the rest is perfectly automatic. That computer, its function, is developed by the environment and if you don't have the environment which can teach you these things, the whole thing crystallizes out here and becomes brittle and you can't learn anything. Now you see, my children had that inestimable advantage of having three languages, besides the Latin that mother taught them, without having to learn it. And they could concentrate on the science. And with sixteen and a half years, they entered medical school. Now, we didn't force them. You don't want to force a child to do anything. But we have the natural ability to develop our genes, which are there, by the environment, before puberty. And everything is done too late, you know, in our society today. Wesley, when he went to Oxford at 12 years old, could write English, and French, and Latin, and Greek. 
Think of it. No trouble, no difficulty, no sitting down and grinding if you let the environment which God gave you work on the genes which he gave you too. And the two fit together just like hand in glove, you know. No work involved. But if you wait till you've got four kids and you're 25 and you go out then as a missionary and have to learn language, well, it's just too bad. You've got to work a long, long time and uh, it usually... It's so that you don't learn it perfectly. There's an enormous, there's almost an infinite capacity to learn before puberty. And almost the bad things that you do in the family, you know. And mum quarrels with dad. And dad quarrels with mum. Those are the things that stick. And then you've got the breakup of the family. Unless dad has learned to forgive mum and mum has learned to forgive dad even in front of the children the children don't learn the basis of the gospel which is certainly reconciliation because we're sinners if you don't do it especially with young children they'll never learn it later the relationship of father and the relationship of mother is crystallized before puberty now in Europe there's the concerted effort concerted effort to stop the idea of father and mother as orientation signs in the family the tax laws are so that it's better for a couple to live in concubinate rather than marrying and people aren't marrying. I was told that a couple could only go to Australia the other day if they went there in concubinate. The law was such that you couldn't do it otherwise. Too difficult to get in. If she went over, the girl, simply to work and be with her beloved one but not live with him, she couldn't get in. But in concubinate, she could. Think of that. Now that's the, the tax laws which are being made today to destroy this environment working on the genes and it will deform our civilization. You've seen it here. Families without fathers can't grow up, you know, the disadvantaged persons would be much better the other way. Now let me give you another experiment uh, very, very quickly there because uh, this is highly, highly important. If you take a human egg out of the side of a woman by laparotomy and you put this egg in a test tube yes, thank you. You put this egg in a test tube and you fertilize it with the woman's husband you will get a human zygote with 46 chromosomes in it. Okay? Now, if you let that egg grow in the test tube by putting in the necessary foods, that egg will multiply 2, 4, uh, 8, 16, uh, 32, 64 cells. But you know, it never produces a baby. It produces an amorphous mass. It must have the egg, it must have the environment right before it produces a baby. If you put it into a uterus, a womb, 
you will get out of that egg, other circumstances being normal, uh, a baby, and a normal baby, because the environment's right. Now, think of this. The eggs, the chromosomes, have got to be okay. The environment round the chromosomes have got to be okay. Let me give you this last one, and then we'll come and, and, and uh, dissect this for you. Uh, if you take the egg of a woman which has been fertilized with the sperm of her husband, put it in the uterus, you get a baby. Now, if you take, say, a bone marrow cell and put it in a uterus, does it give a baby? It ought to, you know. It's got 46 chromosomes. If you put the bone marrow cell in a test tube, it'll divide, but it'll only produce bone marrow cells. If you put it into a uterus, it'll do the same. Why doesn't it give a baby? Now, just try and look at this little picture I've got here. You see, there you've got a zygote on my far side, and here you've got a bone marrow cell. Now, you do this little experiment with me, and it'll explain to you a lot of Holy Scripture. Listen. You then dissect out the nucleus from the zygote, the little bit that I've got in the center, the point. And you put it at the side there at the bottom. Uh, could you put that up just a little bit? Uh, at the bottom there. And then you take the bone marrow cell, thank you. You take the bone marrow cell and you dissect out the nucleus and put it at the side, you see, just like this. There we are, there we are, there we are on the other side. Now, you then take, you listen to me, this is quite vital, this is the experiment that's been done. Then you take the bone marrow nucleus, which got the 46 chromosomes in it, just as the same as the zygote has the 46 chromosomes in it, and then you put the nucleus of the bone marrow cell into the cytoplasm of the egg, which hasn't got a nucleus in it until you put the new nucleus in it. Then you swap the nuclei. Now, if you take that egg, which has the ordinary cytoplasm of an egg in it, but it has the nucleus of the bone marrow cell in it, and if you put that in the uterus, out comes your bouncing mouse. It's been done in three cases in Geneva by Ilmensee. So, you see, what you've done is this. You've changed the environment of the nucleus of the bone marrow cell into the environment of an egg. And the environment of an egg produces a baby. Whereas the environment of a bone marrow cell won't. Okay? Now, that's very important to notice that that actually happens, it's been done. Because it gives you a very good idea of what the heathen have laughed at for donkey's years now. Remember when Adam was formed, do you think Adam was made from uh, an ape or not? That is, did Adam come from an uterus or not? I don't think so myself. Adam was made in a perfectly scientific manner. The action of spirit, logos, on matter, says Genesis, gave a living soul or psyche. And that's just how we do it today. This is nothing that's not scientific to say that. Because if we take matter, which is correct, and then we apply our biochemistry and our know-how to it, 
you can get out a virus. Shortly we shall have our Escherichia coli, bacterium from our own stomach. And that is exactly as the scripture says, that matter plus know-how or spirit gives you a new organism. There's nothing to laugh at about that, you know. It's scientific method. That is creation science. It happens. Now, if you take, you make Adam that way, and then you take out of his rib a bone marrow cell, this has been done now, and you put the nucleus of a bone marrow cell, particularly if it's taken from an embryo, and you put it into cytoplasm, which stops the blocking of the genes that are there. The genes in a bone marrow cell are blocked, as you might say, with scotch tape. Okay? It isn't scotch tape, of course. But if you could dissolve off that scotch tape, when the ribosomes came round to read the genes on the bone marrow cell, instead of only reading the bits of the genes that are free to make a bone marrow cell, if all the genes were laid bare by a substance which dissolved the blocking of those cells which make a, a differentiated cell, then you get a whole organism out. So when the Holy Scripture says that Eve was made from Adam's side and didn't come from the uterus, as the theistic evolutionists say he did, and she did, then there's nothing wrong about that at all. It's perfectly scientific if it happened that way. Because you don't have to make a new creation. The creation took place when the genes were made. That's where the information was gotten from. Okay? All God would have to do would be to take the XY chromosome of Adam and remove the Y or destroy it. And X would automatically divide itself. And you'd have out of a perfect Adam a perfect Eve without a new creation. There's nothing wrong in these things, you know. There's no basis for laughing at what the Bible says. Today's years pass by, I'm thankful because I discover ever more things which prove that the Bible is not invented. If you look at other religions, you'll find that where man was made from a red blood cell, he couldn't have been made from a red blood cell, the certain religions say, because the genes aren't there. But from a marrow cell, he could. Okay? No difficulty. If you want to read these things, you read them up in the natural sciences, know nothing of evolution. Now, I want to go quickly ahead now to this turning round which we read in the scriptures. I'm going to turn the situation right around, draw a little red line under what you've heard, and this will bring it to a head such as we want. A grain of corn, a grain of wheat, is a packet of genes and chromosomes with little food in it. It's a packet of instructions with food in it. Now, if you throw the packet of instructions, the genes, onto a road, traffic comes along, squashes some, the birds come along, eat up some, uh, you get the genes okay, but the environment wrong. The result is that you get no 
uh, crop such as you should get from the information. If some of the genes are thrown among thorns and thistles, the genes are okay. The information is okay. But the thorns and thistles, they choke the realization, the execution of the genes which are in the packet of genes in the food. If, uh, and the food. If you throw some of the genes on good land, then of course you get a, the environment right and the genes right. 30%, 60% and a hundredfold growth. Now that's the second step in the logic. The packet of genes has got to be right and your environment has got to be right to get food. Now this is the last step of logic. Jesus said, are you with me? Jesus said, the word, the seed, is the word of God. Now the packet of genes is the seed. The packet of instructions is the seed which has power in it to produce the new plant. Packet of chromosomes, packet of instructions. The Bible, then, is the wheat corn the wheat seed. There you have in the wheat seed all the instructions which are necessary to produce a wheat plant to produce a hundredfold new wheat for next year. Now, the soil, what about that? The soil, said Jesus, on which the sower sowed his seed is your heart. Now, I've been throwing out at odd times tonight packets of information sometimes from the Bible. To make them grow, you've got to have the packet of information first, and then the heart has got to be the environment to make the seed germinate. Jesus said that the Word of God is very often sown onto the highway, where the ground is hard. Now the highway is a place where there's a lot of traffic. Do you know what we call it today? the lot of traffic? Well, I don't mean trucks on the highway. What I mean is the traffic in your heart. You know, we suffer from stimulus flooding. The eyes are chock full of television pictures and the effort required in the brain to process all those television pictures is something that you can't say it so much. It's almost infinite. And we're suffering from too much traffic in our hearts. Too much newspaper reading, too little Bible reading. Too much television, too little time in our quiet chambers, communing with God, having our quiet time. I'm not suggesting you become a monk. I think that to be unnatural. And all respect to monks, or I wouldn't say anything about monks at all, but I'm not suggesting I'm not suggesting that your pastor becomes a monk and I'm not suggesting that you become a monk. But what I am suggesting is this. That if you've got too much traffic all the time in your heart, your heart will become hard. And no place for the Bible to germinate. It's too hard. And it merely means that it's so trodden down by the permanent traffic over it they can't sink in. We're suffering from stimulus flooding. We don't have the quiet time we ought to have just to plough up the heart a bit. 
listen, I'm going to test you out now with one packet of information which has already been said to us tonight by your pastor. I'm going to test you out now and you can test your own heart. I'm giving you a packet of information yet. And it's this. He used it. You sang it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but should have eternal life. Now you think. You think what that means. It means that God gave his only begotten Son to die. For me and for you. That means that God thought, and you analyze it, thought that you, to save you, was more worth than saving his own life. God's life wasn't saved because he loved you more and he gave his son and Jesus did it free will. Now you think, I've had people come to me today, I had a case when I was up in, in Los Angeles this afternoon. There was a man, disappointed, rejected by everybody, smoking himself to death. So I went over to him and asked him, and you know that was one piece of fruit, he'd been in many, many churches, one piece of fruit that he'd never realized that God loved him more and God loved himself. Now you think of the infinite worth of Jesus' life. And you're more infinitely worthy and worth the love than God's life himself. Now you think that the heart of a man is too hard to receive that. God himself telling you that and if you're not touched by that then I don't know anything that will touch you if that doesn't touch you if that message doesn't reach you the heart the heart is so hard that you can say that to the average person and you say that's religion thank you now you think of a person getting that bit of information germinate in his heart. Why don't we, why don't we let that information, this book of genes, all the explanations and commands of God to make us into a new person, why don't we take those seriously? Well, because our heart is hard. Now, you know, I'm a farmer's son, during the war, my father had a coronary. And all his workmen were away at the war. So my mother telephoned up to me in Stockton-on-Tees, where I was during the war, a long, long, long way away. And she said, look, it's October. We can't get the work on this huge farm done. Fathers had the coronary, as you know. Couldn't you get a fortnight to you two weeks off? And come and help so I went to we were in a you know in the war you couldn't get time off I went and explained the situation they sent me down just for that specific job of ploughing up that farm now we had good Berkshire soil and after the rains it was like concrete 
Now the last thing I'd have thought of doing was going out and sowing that farm, putting the information on it, sowing the seed, because the environment was wrong. It was hard. So I went round and got all the tractors I could to our neighbours, and I got my brother, he got some time off too. We sat on those John Deere and Massey Harris tractors day and night for over two weeks, ploughing, ploughing, ploughing that land that was as hard as concrete. And then having got it soft, ploughed up, that which was underneath we put on top. That's the nature of ploughing, isn't it? Every farmer's son knows that. And that which was on top goes underneath. It turns you upside down. And that's the first process in softening the land. And then we ran over the various drills and the various rolls and got in the seed and the fertilizer and we had a wonderful crop. Now if God sees that his word doesn't take root in you and there's too much traffic in it he sends his plow along and he plows you up. I've been plowed up. I hope you have been and I hope your pastor plows you up too. You see, he's very faithful. I know this in planting the seed. And God is faithful in the troubles you get. You see the troubles I've seen today. Both in the television, I saw one of the family troubles you get. And you know, mother's heart's broken. Well, if you think of just having a heart broken, having it broken, it'll frustrate you. But if it's a mean of making you in time attentive to eternal truths. For temporal trouble, you've gained eternal good. And that's a good bargain. That's a good deal to do. So God will make you go through temporal trouble. You send the John Deere along and the Massey Harris. And you'll go under. But remember this that the hand that guides that plough, the hand that guides it, is a hand that's wanting to make of you a new plant. If anybody is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now when God starts with illnesses, and with trouble with your kids, with trouble with unemployment, trouble with all these things you get say you get unemployed while you get some relief use it to plant in your heart thankfulness that God's given you the time I mean that to understand the genes and the chromosomes the instructions to make a new man and a new woman out of you that's what I'd like you to do as you go about your daily job today take one other thing that I'd like you to do here's another gene and with that gene I'll finish we all it says with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord in his word are being changed daily into his likeness from one glory to another this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit who is the Spirit and Jesus said my word 
is spirit. And here you've got the whole package of God's information to sow in your hearts to make a perfect new being of you. And he does it by stages. Just as you do farming by stages, he starts at you with one particular job and goes on to another. The job is to insert the information, the genes of God's word into your heart after it's been prepared like an onion bed and then it'll grow. And if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. And that's a process which is progressive. Now what does a new plant need? New plant needs, first of all, the right nourishment in the bed, as I pointed out. But the second thing it needs is plenty of sun. Do you know that song here? Do you sing it still? Son of my soul, thou saviour dear, it is not dark, it is not night, if thou art near. The first thing you need is plenty of fellowship with God in his word and God's people. And there's nothing like sun for bringing up a new plant. The grain of corn doesn't look like the new plant. But the grain of corn, when it's in and produces a new plant in the sun, is something entirely new. Something entirely new can made of, be made of us. But plenty of sun, plenty of fellowship with Jesus is the first thing. What's the next thing you need to make a plant grow? You know that. Plenty of rain. Plenty of dark days. And may I say it? I'm not a sadist, but may I say it? Plenty of sadness. Plenty of dark and shadowy days. They're necessary, you know. And when the rain comes down, we say, oh, it's raining again. Think of what it does. And when you get into trouble, think of that. The third thing we need, and that's the end of it all, is plenty of breezes to bring in the carbon dioxide, you see, to make the plant grow. And you know, the wind is the same word as ruach uh, in uh, Hebrew. It means the wind of the Spirit. And where the wind of the Spirit bloweth, there the plants grow. And you want a church as you've got here, where there's plenty of ruach, the wind of the Spirit of God. And the wind of the Spirit of God will make all these plants thrive on the whole word. If a plant only takes part of its genes, it'll only produce a differentiated cell and no whole plant. What you want is the whole word of God to make you a whole man of God. But the heart's got to be right to support it. And that's the relation of genetics and environment. We'll pray together. Thank thee, Lord Jesus, the study of the nature that thou didst make is the study of thyself. We thank thee that thou dost reveal thyself and thine eternal Godhead in thy works. We thank thee that we're fearfully and wonderfully made and that makes our soul praise thee right well. Help us in all our various needs and help us to thank thee in the troubles which thou dost send to us to make us fit to take thy word and receive it with joy. 
and bring forth fruit thirty and sixty and one hundred fold. Amen.